Presents. I'm Jessica Lee, National Vice President for Student Affairs, and tonight I have with me uh, two brothers um, from the Alpha Chapter. One is an honorary, one is an alumnus, um, brother and governor south from the Southwest District, Clint Whedon. Um, and oh, Aaron, remind me of your chapter. Originally Alpha Rho. Alpha Rho, thank you. Um, Alpha Rho, Honorary Alpha, um, Aaron Moore, and he works at headquarters. Hi, guys. How are y'all doing? Doing fine. Doing well. So this is, again, part of our history series. Um, For those of you listening out there that are following us, we started with Brother Steve Nelson uh, with the beginning, and then we did um, up until the 1941 convention with Clint Whedon um, in our last two-part episode because there was so much to cram in. Um, And now we're going to talk— I apologize for rambling. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was great. And so now we're picking up um, after the 1941 convention. But if, uh, Clint, you want to do just— a little recap um, because we're going to go into World War II and how that impacted uh, the fraternity and kind of what happened uh, during the war. Sure. Uh, Where we left off, uh, we had just finished talking about the 1941 convention uh, and the different things that happened there. Uh, We'd had a major overhaul of the national constitution, uh, a major revision of the district system, And then uh, some other things that happened. The Board of Trustees began at that convention. Uh, We had a significant ritual revision be adopted. It had been kind of planned and proposed at earlier conventions, and this was the final adoption, uh, getting rid of some stuff that really was just wildly inappropriate, uh, even for a time when hazing was a little more acceptable (laughs) than it is today. Uh, And... Uh, yeah, and I see the look Aaron's given there on the, <laughs> he's read that too. So <laughs> it's, uh, so just some of those things, some major events happened at 41 uh, that really set us on, were setting us up to move forward with where the organization was uh, in its la- kind of the last years uh, that it was set up as purely an honorary organization. Uh, and then, but not long after that, uh, just a couple of months actually, uh, Pearl Harbor happened and we're in the middle of World War II and everything at that point changes. Uh, it becomes a very difficult time for what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, and things get really tough, really fast. Uh, and that's why I'm so glad that Aaron could join us because, uh, he's done so much with that work, uh, and looking into that, uh, uh, for those that don't know, and I'm going to say it before he can have to explain it himself, because I know Aaron doesn't like talking about himself. Uh, Aaron was part of the team that did the research uh, for Tabe to Sigma's history book uh, and really got into a lot of that and was able to view both sides of what was going on in the founding of Tabe to Sigma and everything. And so much of that is also related to what's happening with Kappa Kappa Psi in the war, uh, that he really does have a really great knowledge base to be able to share with everyone about how everything went down. I love it. Okay, so World War II um, has happened, or has started rather. Uh, So what happens to the fraternity next? So in 1939 to 40, 
we had 658 members. But by the war years, we started to trickle down a little bit. In 1943 and 44, you know, as the the war was winding down, we were down to 59 members. 59? 59 total members in Kappa Kappa Psi. That's like Uh, smaller than some, that's like smaller than Delta. Right. It's as smaller than what, what we have here at Alpha right now. So um, that it's a pretty amazing thing. Um, but we only ended up with five chapters that made it through the entire war as active. And I say the entire war, but I'll qualify that as American involvement in World War II. So from Pearl Harbor through 1945. Um If you want to look at all the way through, there was only um, three that made it all the way through from 1939 through 45. Wow. So, but before we get into the end of the war... You kind of know know what's going on with the fraternity during the war. And as Clint mentioned, that's the big part of the founding of Tau Beta Sigma. And really, while it is a Tau Beta Sigma history, it is completely wrapped up and intertwined in Kappa Kappa Psi. Absolutely. Um, So a little bit about that time period. There weren't really a lot of women in college bands across the country. Um, Some had, had women, but mostly they were all male. Um, at Texas Tech, they first admitted women into the band in 1937, and they chartered their Kappa Kappa Psi chapter, the Alpha Omicron chapter, on March 12, 1938. Um, so the few girls that were in the band saw what Kappa Kappa Psi did. They wanted the same thing. So Weva and uh, a couple other girls in the band, Emily Sorrell and Rose Williams, set out and created a local group, the Tech Band Sorority, Tau Beta Sigma. (laughs) Uh, And that was sometime during the 1939-1940 school year. So right before we get into the war, um, stayed pretty much local, but they reached out to A. Frank Martin, who had become our executive secretary in 1939. Um, And for those of you that don't know the executive secretary title changed, and that's now our national executive director. So it's just a a variation on that same office. (laughs) Um, But in 1941, they reached out to him about, you know, creating a ritual, creating a constitution, and then also about becoming an auxiliary unit of Kappa Kappa Psi. So for people that are familiar with the Masons or Shriners or things like that, there's often a women's auxiliary uh, organization underneath the umbrella of the the male fraternity. And that's what Tau Beta Sigma originally was looking for. Okay, so that kind of makes sense to me. Jack is a Mason. So I I sort of see that, that parallel now as far as what they wanted to do. That makes sense. So, so it took him a while. They, they were working on things, um, and A. Frank Martin asked them to submit an article for the publication in the Baton in 1942. So that's our first mention of Tau Beta Sigma, you know, four years before they were chartered as an organization. Um, but that got the word out. It spread to other schools. Other groups formed. 
and they begin contacting the group at Texas Tech. You know, hey, we want in. <laughs> so it kind of kind of grew just, you know, by word of mouth and just because there are growing numbers of women in band. Um, after December 1941, a lot of the men in the band joined the military and left. So your, your college bands shifted and became almost all female where just a few years before there were no females. Interesting. So it was a drastic change in, in the band movement. Um, so it was absolutely the right time for a sorority to get started that, you know, with similar ideals to Kappa Kappa Psi. Um, you have to you have to wonder like well you know what how women were feeling at the time and you know I mean because they were having to go to work or support their families and and taking on the roles that they were never you know or may not have taken on prior to the war and um, just this idea that not only were women you know joining the college band movement but that they wanted more too that it wasn't just enough to be part of the college band movement but that they wanted to serve bands so you have to to be a fly on the wall you know and to think about what that was like well i mean really i think for a lot of the advancement for lack of a better term that we have in for women in industry and other fields it really becomes it goes back to World War II because mm -hmm. women had those opportunities because the men were at war and proved to the world we can do this. Absolutely. And and you know that that's what was the force behind a lot of this change, which is fantastic. <laughs> so then, okay, so. There, we're gaining momentum. There's this article in the Baton. What happens next? Um, this is where it truly gets interesting. And Clint is laughing. I wish you, you all could see because why. Clint and Jessica are just giggling. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how much was mentioned last time about the interaction between A. Frank Martin and William Scroggs. And I've read so many things how they refer to one another, I will most likely talk to the, recall them as Frank and Bill. So if I say Frank, I'm talking about a Frank Martin and Bill is William Scroggs. Um, <laughs> they started off as friends and colleagues, but they really at times rubbed each other raw. Um, so, and that really came to be during this formation of Tau Beta Sigma. In uh, early 1942, there was talk about sending out a ballot, a change to the Constitution to adopt Tau Beta Sigma as an auxiliary. And at that time, any changes regarding colonization had to have approval of the first vice president. So our vice president of colonization and membership, that was a requirement. If they didn't approve, it didn't go to vote. Um, so at first, much of the council was against sending out this petition, this ballot while the war was going on, they wanted to wait, but eventually they came around and decided, okay, we can do this. William Scroggs consented only if a letter 
that expressed his views on the situation went out to all the chapters as well. So the ballot was prepared, was mailed out to all 24 chapters, but Scroggs's letter was not included. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so this becomes a problem. <laughs> yeah, this, this really starts an issue that carries on between Bill and Frank for many, many years. Um, so by Febu- February 1st, 1943, the results of that that ballot have been received back. Granted, you have to realize this took a while for everything to come in because it's all done by mail. You know, there's no email. Right. There's, and that we, we've, we've talked media. about that. We've talked about this in earlier podcast episodes about how the baton was was pretty much the primary form of communication to learn about anything in the fraternity. You know, there was the list of active members, uh, all of the, all the things. I mean, that was it. It was, you know, receiving your baton was the communication of the fraternity. So um, and that everything had to be mailed as far as, you know, the ballots, you know, for voting and, and those kinds of things. So, um, again, it's kind of a hilarious moment when you think about it, considering we're doing this podcast episode right now, that's going to go out to our listeners and, you know, they were lucky to, to have what they had. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so February of 1943, those results come in all 24 chapters approved Tau Beta Sigma as an auxiliary of Kappa Kappa Psi and the Kappa chapter made sure to note on theirs that they unanimously approved it as a chapter. Wow. So, so okay, it looks like things are going well. We're going to bring them in as an auxiliary. But then when they find out that the letter didn't go out, <laughs> Scroggs calls for a revote of the council because his letter wasn't sent and other members of the Grand Council kind of backed up a little bit and go, maybe we shouldn't do this right now. Mm. So so they struck the results of the ballot. <gasps> wow. So then what happens? This is like a well, soap opera. It absolutely is. So <laughs> um, they, they didn't know what to do, really. So... <laughs> arguing amongst the members of the council. Um, so remember, these people have been on the council for two full years already. Did they serve um, two-year terms back then still? It was still two-year terms. Okay. Uh, it was uh, um, once we got actually onto the biennial schedule. It didn't start a true two years when we started conventions, but it has been since the late 20s for the most part. Okay. Um, but what they decided was send it to the board of trustees. So this is the first major thing given to our new board of trustees that was just instituted in 1941 mm. is they're having to deal with this mess that the council has. <laughs> um, and they, they're real, they decide, you know, since Scroggs didn't, approve of it and he had to approve of it because of the constitution we need to wait so 
it just kind of languished. A. Frank Martin continued to work with the people and uh, the Texas Tech group. And by December of 1943, so we're, we're on another year at this point, uh, still no dis- true decision of, is it going to happen? Are we waiting? But it looks like we're we're just going to spin our wheels and wait. Um, so do you think do you think it was because they were hesitant because there were just so many brothers gone? Or do you think that it was more just because um, Scroggs just didn't like the idea? Well, to interrupt Aaron, uh, that depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> And I know that there's lots of letters and documents and, and research that y'all have done. So, you know, that's it's part of me. I, you know, I think of the the what what must have been going on at that time. I mean, OK, you have to figure like Scroggs and a Frank Martin, like they probably got really pissed at each other. Like I can just imagine like the blowout that ensued after this whole ordeal of, of the letter not going in and then the aftermath of everything. Because you come back and you see all the chapters think it's unanimous. So you have to wonder what was going through Scroggs' head when everybody else, you know, all the chapters wanted it. But then he didn't. I I don't know. It's just it makes you wish you were a fly on the wall. Well, because of some of the letters, you can almost be a fly on the wall. Really, because that I mean, that's how they did their communication. And especially... A. Frank Martin was extremely verbose in his writing. (laughs) You know, something now that would be like a three sentence email was probably five pages, you know. So we have a wealth of that information that we had in the archives and then other stuff that was found at Texas Tech um, in the beta chapters, what they call their crawl space, <laughs> and then also in the archives at Texas Tech. Uh, mm. But I really have to feel sorry for F. Lee Bowling, who was the grand president at the time, because Scroggs would go and tattle on Frank, and then Frank would go and tattle on Bill. <laughs> and he, you know, it's like he was the parent to fighting siblings. <laughs> I can see that. And, uh, uh, and th- then, that's really what, probably the nicest way of explaining yeah. their relationship. And then you had intermediaries uh, that came in, too. Uh, kind of what we talked about in the last episode, uh, that we have so much uh, personal correspondence of Jay Lee Burke. Uh, Jay Lee was one of the neutral parties that became a sounding board for everyone involved. Yes. Uh, and where Aaron talks about, we have some of the letters where you can almost be a fly on the wall. Some of those are the ones that went to Jay Lee uh, that have some very descriptive language of just what some people thought of each other at the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, so it's, you know, F Lee's caught in the middle and then other folks are caught in the middle of this too. Uh, and then e- even the rest of the council uh, that's, uh, you know, we, uh, I'm, I missed this part, so if we need to cut something, we can. Uh, but uh, this is uh, Max Mitchell is on the council as the second vice president, uh, who's got very close ties to Bo uh, because he's working as Bo's assistant, uh, or at this in during this process takes over and becomes Bo's successor. Uh, so he is right there, 
you know, with Bo in his ear on things as well. Uh, and so he's trying to kind of keep the peace and things as well. And uh, just is all over the place for everybody. So. <laughs> it's just so like when you sit down and you really picture all this happening, it's it's hilarious. But then at the same time, it's just it's it's a huge cultural shift in in trying to figure out how that impacts the fraternity and, and even just the change in college bands going on at the time. And I, I can imagine that it must have been difficult to figure out what to do. Absolutely. Okay, so you said we're December 1943? Correct. So, and like I said, still no real decision. So the girls at Texas Tech are starting to think about maybe we just do this on our own. Um, You know, and can't fault them for that. They've been talking to Kappa Kappa Psi for three years at this point and aren't getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's at that time that the decision really comes down that for Kappa Kappa Psi that we're going to wait until after the war until we can have a convention. So we're not going to make a decision. We're deciding not to decide. <laughs> so then did we didn't have a convention in 45, did we? We didn't have a convention until 1947. So from 1941 to 1947, we had the same national council. Oh, which would have had been Effley Bowling would have been in the president, correct? Correct. He he served as president for six years. Okay, so then also during this time, we're creating the National Intercollegiate Band. Yes, that was something that was proposed in the 1930s by Effley Bowling, and he's still kind of trying to build it up. And that premieres in 1947. Yep. Okay, so so then. How do we get to the point where we're like, okay, this is going to happen? And and does it come up at the convention or is it before convention? Where What happens? Well, TBS kind of tries to force the issue a little bit. In June of 44, they submit a petition, just a regular like petitioning document, just like our colonies do now, to join as... Tau Beta Sigma of Kappa Kappa Psi as an auxiliary group. Mm-hmm. And that's still kind of going on. A few months later, A. Frank Martin's given approval to help them nationalize on their own. Hmm. So they, they look to go that way. Um, and this is right before the war ends. So that's he gets that approval in January. Um, the European war ends in May and the war in Japan ends in September of 1945. Um, so while they're working on that in February of 1946, the decision that they would nationalize separately is communicated to the board and to the girls in Lubbock. At that time, D.O. Wiley actually asks A. Frank Martin to incorporate the group in Oklahoma so that they can be a sister organization of Kappa Kappa Psi, share a headquarters, 
share a publication and things of that nature. Because if they were located in Texas, you couldn't really make and A. Frank Martin was actually encouraging to incorporate in Texas, but because that's what the direct deal Wiley was the director at Texas tech. Um, since that's what he requested, they did incorporate it here. So the Kappa Psi sorority became the alpha chapter of Tau Beta Sigma. Interesting. Well, now I know why the Southwest district has an award called the D.O. Wiley award. Right. He he was a major player, not just in Tau Beta Sigma's founding, but in Texas Bandmasters. Dio's nickname is the father of Texas bands. Uh, he's he's that big a deal. So, uh, and to add a little bit, uh, what Aaron was talking about, uh, what kind of pushed that decision of you know we can go ahead and. Uh, you know, have TBS nationalized separately uh, was a decision by the council to, after their discussions, you know, when they'd gotten this petition, things like that, you know, those just the discussions about what to do continued. Uh, You know, you had the same fight that had been going on, but then you also had folks, this is where somebody like Max Mitchell steps in, uh, who's advocating, maybe we wait because we are the next time we have a convention, maybe we can just get rid of that restriction on membership entirely and be a co-ed or organization. Uh, And I think one of the lines in some of Max's correspondence is something like, someday I believe that my daughter will be able to be called a brother of Kappa Kappa Psi, something like that. That's uh, at that time, you know, so you've got that added into the discussion as well. And finally, they just say, you know what, we're done with it. We're sending it to the board. Uh, We're sending it to Bo. We're sending it to Fran Todd, uh, who, if you remember from the last podcast, very influential figure in the fraternity at that time as well. They're the top guys on the board. They said, we're sending it to them. We'll go with what they want to do. And then it comes back. This is what you need to do. And since you brought up the the possibility of Kappa Kappa Psi being co-ed, one of the things that when the group at Texas Tech started talking about nationalizing on their own is maybe we'll just organize as a co-ed organization. So they were looking at that as a possibility in the 1940s as well. Which, Uh, I mean, when you think about it at the time, is very progressive. Absolutely. Um, But they figured, you know, if we're going to do this on our own, we can just be inclusive. (laughs) Um, I can see that. And and one of the reasons that Kappa Kappa Psi kind of stalled, you know, making a decision or telling them to go ahead and do it on their own is they wanted to maintain some kind of oversight of the group. Because in the proposed structuring, you wouldn't be able to have a Tau Beta Sigma affiliate or auxiliary at a school that didn't have a Kappa Kappa Psi chapter. Okay. And again, that's reminiscent of the Masons. So I, I see where the thinking, because so many of the founders were Masons. By this time. Yes, they were. Absolutely. Um, we, we, we do credit a lot of the founders as being Masons, but it was something that they didn't join until after they finished school. Gotcha. So, um, which is something that we just really kind of found out over the last few years as we did more research ourselves. Right, right. 
Yeah. But the thinking at the time, you know, I, I understand, Absolutely. you know, that that sort of structure that they were wanting to have. Not that I agree with it, but I understand it. It's definitely a picture of the times. Oh, for sure. And I think I, I, I just want to reiterate that to our listeners, too. You know, that it's um, we are we are talking about almost 100 years ago. So, I mean, things were very different than, than they are now. So we just ended the war. Yep. And and uh, so the Alpha Chapter Incorporated... Alpha Chapter of Tau Beta Sigma Incorporated, March 26, 1946. And over that that final year, and then a couple of months even after they incorporated, A. Frank Martin was writing their ritual. So really, you can consider him kind of the father of the ritual for both organizations, as he wrote the majority of both. With the exception of our current first degree. So he he's really helping and assisting and, and doing whatever he can to help make them successful. Um, and when you say that they incorporate, um, they incorporate as a national organization or what steps yeah, they, did they take? Yeah. They had to incorporate with the state of Oklahoma as a corporation. Okay. Uh, so as, as a, actually as a fraternity, not as a sorority, which uh, something that a lot of our sisters find odd when they get their shingle that says tall beta Sigma honorary band fraternity. Um, but that's because how it is is a legal institution is a fraternity, not a sorority. Interesting. So okay, so they're so they're legit now. Yes. Right? They're legit. So then what happens? Well, let me let me th- throw one more thing in there. You mentioned A. Frank Martin's involvement over time. And I want to say that he had a vested interest in this. Because the first president of what is the Alpha Chapter is his daughter. Oh, I didn't know that. So she she becomes she comes onto the National Council when when they form as a national group and elect their first set of national officers, and then later becomes national president of Tau Beta Sigma. And what was her name? Uh, Francis Martin. That's awesome. I did not know that at all. That's so cool. So, he, like I said, he had a very vested interest in helping get a girls organization going as he had a college age daughter at the time. And his son, A. Frank Jr., had been an out, a member of the Alpha Chapter of Cap Cap Psi. So it was very much in the family. Yeah. That's incredible. Okay, so he, I mean, obviously very invested in all this. Do we know, like, how did, do we know how Scroggs felt about this? Like, was he unhappy about it? Do we, do we know anything about his thoughts about as this process gets, as they become an organization? Well, to give Aaron just a break so he can 
<laughs> take a drink. Uh, uh, Scroggs's correspondence in there, uh, and if you read correspondence from Bill Scroggs, uh, like Aaron and I have been fortunate enough to do, uh, he's usually very direct in his correspondence. Uh, he very much is someone who says what he thinks, uh, whether, you know, regardless of the degree of what he thinks, whether it's good, whether it's bad, you know where you stand uh, if he's being direct. Um, and his objection, at least what I read, you know, in reviewing the stuff, uh, you know, now again, qualifying with that with, we have other correspondence that has other opinions and colors the debate a little bit. His main objection was that was procedural, was that it was more of how this was being done, not in a national convention or, you know, not when the whole fraternity could be part of the process or things like that, you know, that it was just, you know, trying to throw this in and uh, not really give the kind of say so that should be available for a decision like this. So at least that's what's on its face uh, is his argument uh, is that just procedurally they needed to be doing things different. Not so much that he was opposed to the group, but that it was this needs to be we need to do this a different way. Absolutely. Well, and, and OK, I get that, because when you when you go back and you look at everything, I mean, that's kind of the way they operated, you know, when especially like we talked last time when the chapters were so small, there was so they had such a great part in the decision making of the fraternity. And so I totally I, I understand where his thinking was as far as that was concerned, because that's how they made all their decisions. Definitely. And it also it's an interesting dichotomy because uh, we have that. You know, that where he doesn't feel like this process, you know, the fraternity's processes are being followed in this instance. But then we have something ha that happens at the 1947 convention that's a major stepping stone for the fraternity that followed these processes 100 percent all the way. Yeah. You know, uh, and it's like this is just as major a thing as Tau Beta Sigma in some regards. But. There's no discussion as to what needs to happen with this. This has to follow procedure. But the Tau Beta Sigma issue was entirely a different story in the way that was being argued. So just kind of one of those things that sometimes things go one way, sometimes they go another. Uh, but uh, when we get when we get into discussion of the 47 convention, uh, that's uh, yeah, that this one major thing that happens was so very procedural uh, and where this one wasn't as much. So. <laughs> <laughs> so so what happens next well i think clint kind of led us into it we're we're pretty much up to the 1947 convention yeah. uh, so, Dale, uh, unless you want to recap uh tbs is first i was gonna say the only other thing is in 1946 tbs held their first national convention in lubbock um where they elected their national officers so there was the alpha chapter they installed the beta chapter at texas tech and then had a convention, even though they had delegates and elected officers from Gamma and Delta. I, I think it was Delta had one of them had not yet been actually installed, but was seated as delegates and um, elected a national council. They 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 set their first set of officers. The president would be from Beta since they were the founding chapter. And then the next group that submitted would be the vice president. The next group that submitted would be and so on. Oh, so I got Al you. Alpha had the secretary and the treasurer. Um, 
Beta had the president, Gamma had the vice president. Interesting. So, so we have they now have their national council. We move into 1947, and we have our regularly scheduled biennial convention, you know, meeting for the first time since 1941. Um, and TBS meets at the same time for their second national convention. And where are they at? Stillwater. That is in Stillwater, Oklahoma. So, um, and Clint, I'll let you kind of jump in at this point. Yeah, yeah it sounds like you need another drink there. <laughs> <laughs> um, why we were in Stillwater for that convention was originally the 1943 convention was supposed to be in Stillwater as kind of the early celebration of the 25th anniversary of the fraternity, uh, but also to celebrate Bo because he was retiring from Oklahoma A&M that year. Uh, and it was all supposed to be one big grand celebration. Well, it didn't happen, but they went ahead and had the convention in Stillwater when they were finally able to again. So we end up there. Um, and as we're coming into this, uh, you know, we've got everybody's finally coming back. Chapters are getting active again. Some of them anyway. Uh, some of them are not. Um, you know, recovering membership numbers from the war, uh, things like that. Uh, some of them are back on their feet. Some of them aren't. Uh, some of them are working to get their chapter reactivated uh, under a policy we had at the time called a war furlough. Uh, and what that was, was you could fill out a form and say, we don't have anyone left on campus. Here's all our stuff. Uh, when we have people to be brothers again, we will send you a note and ask you to send us our stuff back so that we can restart the chapter. Uh, you know, and there's uh, some of those around still, uh, not very many, but a couple of them uh, are still in the files. Uh, so we have seen those documents and it's a very basic form. It's, you know, just we're this chapter. Here's our stuff. Please hold it for us until we come back. Uh, <laughs> but not everyone did. Uh, we lost a lot of chapters during the war uh, that had been active before and then didn't come back after, some of which uh, still aren't back, some of which took many years to come back. Uh, it's actually, we, we talk about the 41 convention a lot. Uh, Oregon State was a chapter like that. Uh, you know, had off and on, you know, there were long gaps of their activity uh, between that 41 convention that they hosted and when they finally really came back for good a few years ago. Uh, so you have some some of that going on as well. But you've got chapters coming back. Um, they're getting together and getting operations going. And some of the ones that had not fully dropped off or got restarted quickly had some ideas about things that they wanted to see happen uh, at this convention. This is the other major event that we Excuse me. This is the other major event that was uh, mentioning a few minutes ago. Um, as executive secretary, you know, A. Frank Martin is still in contact with all the chapters that are functioning during the war. And at one point he gets a letter uh, from a chapter saying essentially, well, we have two or three young, young members of the band that we would like to send bids to and have join Cap Cap Psi. The problem is it would be a violation of the national constitution to give them a bid because they are not Caucasian. What can we do? Uh, and very procedurally, uh, but very kindly, Frank sends them a reply and says, please, you know, don't do anything now. Wait until national convention because it's not that far away. 
and we'll see what we can do about this rule. And at the 1947 convention, that that language in the national constitution is altered and our race restrictions on membership are removed. Uh, And we have been a open organization in that regard since 1947. Um, And so Aaron. So I'd like to take a second and just read what that language was and what it changed to. Yeah. Um, So prior to 1947, the language in the Constitution read, all members of the fraternity shall be of the male sex and of the Caucasian race. And then after 1947, it was all members of the fraternity shall be of the male sex. And that stood until the 1970s. Which is for another podcast. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> so, or some reading on uh, on the website. Uh, you know, because on that- the Podium website. There's four fantastic articles by Dave Justin called Women in the Fraternity. And find out everything that happened with that situation. <laughs> so, but uh, on 47, uh, that's a major event that happens, uh, jur- you know, in our jurisdiction and our structure. Uh, we talked about the NIB earlier. Uh, 47 is when the NIB debuts. Uh, it is the first performance of that. And actually, William Scroggs was the first conductor of the NIB. Uh, there was no really guest conductor like we know today uh, and the commissioning program had not started so we did not have a commissioned piece to debut but uh, so we just kind of had a parade of honored individuals to conduct the band uh, and the first piece played by the NIB was Semper Fidelis and it was conducted by William Scroggs uh, at the auditorium on the Oklahoma A&M campus, uh, which after renovation in the 1970s is now the concert hall of the Saratine Center for the Performing Arts. So you can go in and see that in July if you happen to come to National Convention. Uh, it looks very different, except the stage is the same. So, <laughs> Which most of you will, because that's where the Kappa Kappa Psi separate sessions will be and the joint sessions. So we will actually be in that facility. There you go. So uh, you have that happen. Um, And then in talking about Top Beta Sigma, as we have been, uh, that convention, we also vote for Kappa Kappa Psi to accept Top Beta Sigma as a sister organization uh, and begin setting up processes for them to share headquarters and publications and things like that uh, that Aaron touched on a little while ago. Uh, All of that happens at that convention as well. Uh, Not not a huge attendance at the convention. Again, still coming out of the war, still getting people back into school, um, things like that. Uh, And yeah, building numbers back up. And then you have Tabi to Sigma, uh, not very large at all at the time. So not very many to attend, uh, but everybody's represented uh, for the most part and gets to make these decisions and uh, gets things moving. Um, and um, Aaron, do you remember anything major there other than the election? Uh, there's a couple of things, but I wanted to touch on the numbers real fast since okay. you mentioned that. Um we were back up to 20 active chapters at the time of the 1947 convention from where we had five throughout the war. Wow. And in the 1945-46 school year, we had 109 members. So still really small, but much better than the 59 we'd had two years prior. Right, yeah. So so we're, we're starting to rebuild. Um, 
the chapters that came back off the war furlough, basically, like Clint said, just had to request to come back in and pay their reinstatement fee as a chapter, which was to us a very insignificant amount. (laughs) (laughs) To them, it might not have been, but, you know, it was it was much less than an individual's dues now. But one of the big things that happened at that convention actually comes out of a result of the election. And so it's expected in the election that William Scroggs is going to advance to become the grand president. He's served on the council. He's a current first vice president. But as he presided over the first national convention, because grand president A. Frank Martin wasn't there, he decided to step aside to give one more brother an opportunity. Um, so that kind of threw things off a little bit from what the expectation was. And Max Mitchell became national president. It, was he on the council at the time? Yeah. He, he had been the second vice president. Okay. And uh, just adding to what Aaron's saying, uh, Max had actually been elected in 1941 as the second vice president, which was his initial involvement on the National Council. Uh, His first time, you know, and he ended up in that role for six years because of the delays in having. But that was the only office that he had been in. Uh, He had not been the expansion officer uh, and things like that uh, and had that preparation. Uh, And actually, Max is the last brother of the fraternity to skip being the expansion officer and the highest level vice president and become the national president of the fraternity. So is that when that constitutional change was made that our VPCM, our vice president colonization membership becomes the president elect or was that later? That's something I haven't really studied, but that I can name see from change your in itself doesn't yeah. come until much later. <laughs> yeah. I literally I saw in your faces, the, you were like, hmm. But there was, it was, it had happened the few elections before 41, the last couple, but it was not a, you know, but some of the ones. It's not an automatic. Yeah, but the ones before the night, you know, the, the elections in the 1920s and the early 1930s, uh, you'd have some of those, some of those national presidents were elected to be national president without having served on the National Council at all. Uh, And, you know, as we talked about in the last podcast, you know, you'd have people run for an office, get reelected, and then go off the council or run for one term for something and not come back. Just much more like you see in a chapter or a district election rather than how we progress now with the National Council uh, and that automatic advancement uh, with the majority vote uh, to advance the VPCM to become national president. Uh, So we had kind of gotten into the pattern of the first vice president becomes the president, uh, but then once we hit 47, that got broken again uh, because of what Scroggs did, uh, but then it went back in place after that and has been in place ever since. So. Interesting. So Scroggs doesn't become national president. Everybody's shocked. Max Mitchell becomes president. And then what happens? Well, with William A. Scroggs at that convention, he is actually named by the by vote of the the voting body honorary grand president 
So he he holds an honorary title to the council, which is something that only a handful of people have have had throughout the years. Uh, Clint is holding up a number three for me. Uh, so uh, uh, it's it's Scroggs, A. Frank Martin, and William Ravelli to have been granted that status by the national chapter. So what did that status mean? It's really like, well, I mean, Clint's just shaking his head have, like nothing. Honorary members, but that's, that's like the highest of the honorary members. It doesn't have any voting privileges or anything like that. It's, it's really just the resolution of you've done great things for us and we want to recognize you. Gotcha. Okay. This is really before we have fraternity awards. Yes. Oh, okay. So this was this was a way to recognize and and just say, you know, we we realize all that you've done, and so we give you this this honorary title. Yes, absolutely. Gotcha. So, and that's something that will change uh, in the years that are coming up under Max Mitchell, uh, and we have kind of a predecessor award to the Founders Trophy gets started called the Balfour Trophy. Uh, our jeweler decided to provide this to Cap Capsi and Tau Beta Sigma to recognize the outstanding chapter in the country. Uh, it's a very short-lived award, uh, I think three years, I think. Three consecutive years that went to Alpha Omicron. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, so the Texas Tech chapter uh, for Cap Capsi claimed that award because the rule was if you won it three times, you could keep it. Uh, I think Tau Beta Sigma's award varied, but I'm not sure. But the program discontinued very quickly uh, because it was being sponsored by the jeweler. Uh, and if I remember right, it was only a year. It was a yearly program, not a biennial program. It was annual. Yes. Yeah. And so that made things a little awkward as well, because you're giving out a top chapter award in an off year when not everybody's getting together and things like that. So sure. sure. But, but that uh, that was kind of the predecessor to start the fraternity awards program. Uh, and that's under Max. And uh, really with Max, uh, talking about what happens next, uh, that kind of touches on some things we talked about in the last episode. Uh, this is where things start to change. This is where the fraternity that we know today really begins to come into focus. This is where it starts. Uh, Max is someone who very much believes in service. Uh, as a worthy endeavor uh, and once and believes that Kappa Kappa Psi should promote that in its band programs rather than simply being an honorary organization uh, as it was primarily up until that time. Uh, he's also somebody that believes that it should be expanded. Uh, we talked about in the last episode kind of the philosophy of we need to be at big schools, prominent schools with strong band programs, you know, because we need to have, uh, you know, our reputation needs to be enhanced by the institutions where we have chapters. You know, we they need to enhance us as much as we enhance them. Max isn't as much of a believer in that. You know, he believes that there should be opportunity uh, and because of the goals of not only honor, but service as well, that we should open up and that we begin to see that immediately uh, in some of the expansion that goes on uh, under Max Mitchell's presidency. Uh, you start to see we had had teachers colleges before. Uh, actually, Aaron's home chapter uh, was one of the first teachers colleges to be granted a charter. Uh, but under Max, you saw that jump 
very quickly to multiple teachers' colleges. Uh, you saw private schools uh, that were not major private schools, small private schools, uh, begin to have colonies and receive charters chapters as well, uh, and really just kind of kicked off an expansion boom that lasted uh, well into the 1960s uh, that was just really rapid growth uh, in a lot of ways because we had now opened ourselves to being at all these different types of institutions that we had closed ourselves off from before. So really, I mean, he... I don't want to say revolutionized, kind of transformed uh, our expansion process. Really, these war years made a drastic change on the fraternity. We saw the institution of our board of trustees. So the, the basic framework of our national structure was put in place in 41. And then, I mean, we did change officer titles and do a little restructuring later on, but it's fundamentally the same. And then the expansion and the focus on service all came out of the war years. Well, and it, it kind of had to, didn't it? You know, I mean, I mean, if you're saying that we only had a, a hundred, a little over a hundred brothers and we had lost so many chapters and everything. I mean, the need to grow and to become sustainable, I would imagine, was probably pretty at the, the forefront of people's concerns. Absolutely. It's also easiest to make change when you're small. Right. So there's not been another more opportune time in our history to make those kinds of changes than right there in 1947 and 1949. Wow. Just incredible. So then now we have Tabita Sigma and our headquarters is still in – at Oklahoma A and M, it's not at this time. It's actually in the music building, and I'm saying music building in quotes here <laughs> uh, because the OSU band or the OAMC band bounced around buildings for much of its early existence. But um, the we were granted space in the building and. They actually put down linoleum in there that had our ritual floor set up. So if you came in there, you would see the things on the floor that you would expect to see at ritual. And that's where Alpha would hold their rituals. So headquarters was there. And some of it was also at Grace and A. Frank Martin's home. (laughs) The, The office was in the music building. All of the storage was in their attic and workroom was in their attic. Um, they later screened in a porch to or yeah. filled in a porch to be office space for yeah. the fraternity. And unfortunately, we can't we can't go look at the house and see what they did to accommodate that. Uh, their house has been torn down and there's a hotel there now. So but, mm. uh, but uh, we know we know that kind of office stuff was still going on there because uh, uh, we have a. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about with the 47 and then going into the 49 convention, uh, 49 convention saw us reactivate districts uh, and that system. And Tabi de Sigma adopted the same district system that Cap Capsi had so that that would also be uniform. Uh, at the 1949 national convention, our national council uh, appointed district officers 
for the districts. Uh, students were selected to be the district president, uh, and in some cases, uh, secretary treasurer, uh, at least from the records we have. Don't know if there's were vice presidents or kind of this, you know, it's still kind of some of that spotty record keeping uh, era. But we know some of them are appointed uh, in District Six, which is the bulk of what is now the Southwest. Uh, that person that was appointed was named Thomas Shook, uh, and he was from the Alpha Omicron chapter. Uh, but very shortly after he was appointed, he finished his term and graduated, and went to Oklahoma A and M as a graduate student and worked for the Martins as an assistant for national headquarters. Uh, And so that's where we know some of how the operations were still going on there because we have pictures of him running a mimeograph machine over the garage or whatever to to get everything ready for a mail out or something like that. So, (laughs) so, and so basically now that Tabby to Sigma is a sister organization, they are a Frank Martin is just, taking care of all of their stuff too absolutely and and at this point in time really a frank martin runs both organizations just all of the day-to-days and on the top eight sigma side really a lot of even beyond the day-to-day he's very involved with their council and their direction and maintains that level of involvement that he had with helping to organize the founding group. Sure. Uh, And that's a difference uh, in the organizations at the time, whereas Kappa Kappa Psi had moved into, you know, professionals and alumni and becoming very quickly college band directors are the ones serving on the national council for a long time. Tau Beta Sigma was still student led. Uh, their national officers were all still enrolled in college. So it was, he's navigating a lot of these things because the students don't have the time for one or the expertise to manage these kind of affairs because they're still in school. Interesting. Okay, so that makes sense to me. So, is was there a moment where that shifted for Tau Beta Sigma, and then it became the the model that we see now? Was that did it take them a while, or was that you know in the in the? I don't know 50s? that I can say that it was like a moment, but it was a gradual change mm-hmm. until, and it really changed primarily with the level of influence of the executive secretary that maintained until a frank martin retired in the 1960s so that's really when your your big shift with tau beta sigma's leadership begins is the retirement of a frank martin sure so or and you would also see uh just to interject uh, you know when you would have occasions where it wasn't student leadership or something like that, uh, it would be someone who would be serving as a counselor for the sorority, which was usually the wife of a band director who was involved in Kappa Kappa Psi. So uh, you see some of that sometimes. Some of our national presidents for Kappa Kappa Psi in the 50s and 60s, their wives would be on the top of the Sigma National Council and advancing through that. Okay, that makes sense. Which, as a researcher, was very difficult sometimes to find out who, what their names were, because if you think in that time, you're you would be Mrs. Jack Lee. Ah, so right. So, who is who is Mrs. Jack? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) and finding those names is not easy. That was oh man. 
That's, and it got even worse when we uh, did district research. <laughs> so, See, the things that you don't even think about is yeah. things of the time, you know, that um, uh, and it, being, and refer, being referred to in that because we don't even refer yeah. to women really anymore in, in that way now, you know, Not at all. so and that's I didn't even think about that. So well, interesting. And what made it a sick exceptionally difficult was it wasn't just in things, you know, where they'd be out in public, you know, and you see in the newspaper, you know, some society thing, something like that. Our records were kept that way. Their actual, their real name was not recorded. Was, you know, it was, here's the roster book for Tabe de Sigma and their sponsor, their honorary is Mrs. So-and-so rather than who she actually was. Actually was. Her real name. So, <laughs> uh, you know, you have to, you know, there was so much digging in trying to find out, you know, more about those folks for the Tabby to Sigma side uh, because you had to do so much work just to find out what their name was. Well, yeah, I'd imagine you're searching for wedding announcements or obituaries or, or obituaries. Yeah. So that's yeah. So. Fascinating. So. so do we have we have we gotten to the post-war point where it's a good point to stop or do you have is there more? I know y'all are the y'all are the I, knowers. I, you have I the think notes. we have just a few more few more points. Um, and we Clint mentioned that in under Max, the expansion of the fraternity really took off. And one reason for that was a change that happened in 1947 at the convention in the Constitution. So you'll remember I mentioned that the first vice president had to approve any colonization or petitions. Mm -hmm. That rule was changed in 1947. Um, now it just took 80% of the Grand Council or 75% of chapter vote. So one person no longer had veto authority <laughs> over over that. So that's a re another reason why we were able to expand rapidly after World War II. Well, I would imagine that it, it you don't have one person getting the ultimate authority now. I mean, you've got people that want to grow and, and they know that for the survival of the organization, we have to. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so as a result of that, that expansion, we went from the 20 chapters in 1947 to having 46 active chapters and a colony at the time of the 1949 convention. Wow. Is that our greatest period of expansion in the fraternity? <sighs> probably with you know, 26 in, in two years, probably. I think we had some periods in the past 10 years where we had 15 to, tw to 20 I know Adam Cantley had quite a few. Yeah. Um, Adam, Melinda, and Derek at all as uh, VPCM all all had a, a good run of colonies. <laughs> but the, that's the major, major changes. Yeah. Uh, you did mention the the district realignment and, and reinstitution. Another thing that comes out of that is prior, when we had the district structure before for Kappa Kappa Psi, what we now know as governors were called counselors, mm. like, like in the Tau Beta Sigma uh, setup. In 1949, that changed at the request of uh, charter member Raymond Shannon, who was the District 9 governor. 
um, because he felt that governor more accurately described the job that they do. So, so that's been the, the title we've used since 1949. And uh, to follow on that, uh, one thing I left off with districts, uh, we kind of touched on in the last podcast, and it may have been in the part we had to cut, uh, that we had uh, district councils were a little bit different prior to World War II. Uh, we had involvement from alumni members as well uh, in that with students, you know, that more egalitarian kind of thing where, you know, it wasn't necessarily the same level of involvement as an alum and an active, but they could work together on things like that uh, rather than it being solely for one or the other. When the district system came back, district officers were students. And that's stayed that way since uh, it became implemented then for districts to be that for, for the district councils to be a student level thing, uh, reporting to the governors uh, and things like that, because there wasn't a lot of that oversight before uh, with, you know, what we called counselors and then changed to governors that that came in. A lot of that came in. Uh, really, the emphasis on that uh, came in at the 41 convention, with the adoption of that district alignment. And so once that was in place, uh, then it changed how we operated the student councils as well. Uh, and districts came back in force uh, in 1950. Uh, District 6 held a convention, uh, which I believe was recorded as the first district convention to be held since the war and went from there. Uh, and then all the districts get back up and running and electing officers, all the districts holding their conventions in the off years of national convention, uh, which was a process that uh, lasted a long time, uh, maybe longer than it should have. <laughs> For many districts up until the 80s. Yeah. So, uh, but that, uh, after 1950, that was back. So. Wow. I didn't realize, well, I knew that they were held in the off years for the long, for a long time, but I didn't realize up until the eighties. That's crazy. Where, where's a good place for us to leave off time wise? And what would be the focus of a next podcast? Where would we go from here? I think 49 really is a good, good yeah. stopping point. Um, the, we we've we've got through the major changes that came out of the war and then the next real time that i think you can go to as a, a as a next stopping would point would be in 1964 with yeah. the retirement of a frank martin yeah if you want to keep it on the convention years or whatever it'd be through the 1965 national convention mm -hmm. and aaron and i were kind of talking about that uh that's where it's a major change for us because Frank is so involved for so long uh, on both organizations. It's also kind of the last hurrah of the founders when Frank steps aside uh, because he's the last one that's fully involved. So when he retires, all of them are finally away from the organization. It is on its own without that guidance. Uh, and then there's some, you know, the major events that happen developmentally over that 15 year period from 49 to 64. That's our introduction of HBCU chapters. Uh, there's massive expansion uh, again, you know, cause we're burning through gamma and Delta and Epsilon chapters. Like they're going out of style. <laughs> so, um, and 
and think uh, that's Raymond Shannon uh, every, with what happened to him, uh, which was a major event for us as well. Uh, and then a couple other things related to some awards and some council decisions uh, that really just kind of ends the Scroggs Martin tragedy. So, okay, I'm I'm taking notes so I know what we're hitting yeah. on next time. Um, final thoughts of where uh, of where to leave us. What do you? What would you? Here, let me ask you this: For though knowing that both of you have done so much research and, and have had the opportunity to read this beautiful por- personal correspondence by by certain members, what would you say is truly the sustaining impact of World War II on the organization? Besides, of course, Tau Beta Sigma. I'd have to say the major things that I see come out of that time frame is our creation of the board of trustees and the, the removal of race restrictions on the fraternity. Yeah. <clears throat> Those. And what was I going to say? Uh, where, what Aaron touched on are uh, the focus shift of the organization and the opportunity that we had for that, uh, to become the service oriented group that we are today. Uh, that's, uh, when we do the history you know, kind of the blast presentation, you know, frat history in an hour, uh, 49 is where it ends because that's where. That's where the early fraternity. Yeah. That's where the shift really has. Fraternity began. Yeah. So, you know, there's still things to develop to become the fraternity that we know, but the basic foundation of it is in place in 49. So. Well, gentlemen, thank you. As usual, I've learned about 700 things that I didn't know before. Um, So then I guess next episode, um, if I can have you both back, um, love to pick up with both of you. Um, And we're going to look at 1949 to 1965 and all the things Clint just told us. Um, And uh, I hope those of you out there that are listening to this journey through fraternity history are enjoying because I know I am. And um, I appreciate uh, both of your time. Um, And I I know it's been said multiple times in the podcast, but the amount of work that both of you have done researching the history of the fraternity is absolutely extraordinary. Um, And I don't think that gets recognized enough um, because really when I think of people in the fraternity, when I have a history question, it's usually one of you that I run to the answer for or both. Um, And so thank you for your service in that regard, um, the research, the time, the money, because I know that you've purchased things that you find on eBay, uh, whatever those might be. Well, and speaking of that, I just bought a photograph of either the 1919 or 1920 Oklahoma A&M band while we're recording this. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's great. It's got uh, it's on the steps of the auditorium. It's Bo in his uniform and Clyde Haston is the drum major and, you know, a couple others in there as well. (laughs) So thank you. Truly, uh, for your service and, and for everything. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll pick up where we left off at the 1949 convention and take us through 1965 in the next episode. So thanks, guys. Um, and to listeners out, out there, um, hope you'll tune in again and keep striving.